Well, I hope this Christmas that you did have some time to spend with your family and friends and that that was a profitable time. The reason why seasons like Christmas are so important to many people is because we know the value of family. We understand that family is really special. God puts us on this planet and he gives us mothers and fathers and sometimes siblings and cousins and aunts and uncles and so forth. And there's something special about those relationships. We may not necessarily appreciate every one of our relatives, but we do know that there's something unique and special about family relationships. And so we tend to work really hard to keep our families united because we know it matters. And if that doesn't happen and our families become divided or there's challenges in our family relationships, we feel it. It doesn't feel good. Sometimes relationships are pulled apart even though we've worked hard at them. But most of the time, we know that if we exercise love and forgiveness and kindness and all the other fruits of the Spirit toward our family members, that we can usually do a pretty good job of keeping our families intact. The question I would like for us to consider today is do we work equally hard at keeping our church family relationships intact. We should. What we're going to discover in the passage that I've selected today is that conflict and confrontation is an inevitable part of our relationships with one another as a Christian community. It's inevitable. There's going to be times when we disagree. There's going to be times when we do not get along. There's going to be times when we are mad at each other. That's normal. Don't run from your church just because there's a few problems. That's normal. But the way we handle confrontation and conflict with one another makes all the difference in the world. Now, perhaps you find yourself to be one of those conflict-avoidant personalities. Anybody here today that's conflict-avoidant? There's many reasons why we should be... Is there a problem, guys? Okay, sorry. There's, there's many reasons why we may try to avoid conflict on occasion. Sometimes it's because of a lack of love for other people. Uh, other times it's a fear of disappointment. We don't want to let other people down. It might be a matter of mental ambiguity. There's a problem, but we haven't really sorted out what the cause or source of the problem is. Other times, we may not handle conflict because we have not developed good communication skills. We just don't know what to say. We don't know how to say sorry. We don't know how to ask questions like, hey, how are you feeling? Is there something wrong? We just don't have the communication skills. We haven't developed them, and that can stand in the way of managing our conflict. It can be a lack of tenacity, a a tendency to give up really quick. It can be a disrespect for our parents. If the conflict happens to be with a person in a position of authority, it can be a respect issue. Or it might be because your family has been riddled with so much abuse and turmoil and problems that you're just fed up. You're just tired, tired out. 
But what we'll see in the text today is that the pain of conflict is worth the beauty of unity. The pain of conflict is worth the beauty of unity. As Paul writes this letter to the Corinthian church, he identifies once again an outstanding problem that existed between these Christian people and Paul. Paul had written them a challenging letter, a sorrowful letter. He had to confront them on some things. We learned about that in the early chapters of 2 Corinthians, and he sort of took some time to discuss some other things. But now he kind of comes back around, circles back around to that conflict, that problem they were having, and shares further some perspective on them to, with them to help them to work hard at unity uh, in the church. Now, I'd like to give you an illustration at this point that might be helpful for you to understand. One of the things that I think often hinders relational reconciliation, forgiveness, unity in the church is our tendency to want to run from pain because conflict, after all, is painful. We don't want it. We don't want the pain of conflict. We don't want to bear the, the burden. The, we don't want to have the, the tough conversations. I remember, though, a couple years back, we had some young kids up at our cottage, and they were running all over our wooden pressure-treated deck and their bare feet, all over it. And of course, we're not at the cottage all the time. And so at times, little slivers start to poke up through the wooden deck. Well, these little guys come running into the house and they're complaining that their slivers all in the bottom of their feet. And their mom and dad, who happened to be with us, wanted to obviously remove these slivers from these children's feet. But these little guys would have, have none of it. And they hollered and balked and screamed and carried on. Why? Because they knew that the process of removing slivers is painful. But what their young minds didn't understand is that there would be greater pain and greater problems associated long-term with leaving the slivers in their feet, the potential for infection and so forth. But this is a classic illustration of how many of us handle conflict. We avoid it because we don't want that immediate pain. But the problem is if we don't handle the conflict properly, the relationship starts to get infected and the pain begins to increase. And perhaps you've come to church today and you know exactly what I'm talking about because you have relationships with people in the church that have been conflicted for years. You have relational angst or discord with other believers that's been going on for a long time and you've never addressed it because you don't want the immediate pain. But again, let's remind ourselves that the pain of conflict now is worth the beauty of unity. Godly confrontation between God's people leads to the kind of change that we can rejoice in. So as Paul helps us to understand this, find your way in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're just going to look at verses 2, 3, and 4, a very practical lesson for us today. How do we keep conflict healthy, redemptive? Here's what we're taught. The Bible says, make room in your hearts for us. We, wrong, we have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you're in our hearts to die together 
and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all of our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. Three lessons for us to consider. Here's the first one. We must, at all times, make room in our hearts for one another. The apostle commands the people of God, make room in your hearts for us. There's a lot of medical evidence and medical advice available to us pertaining to cardio health. We've all heard it. We all know it. We have one heart. You have it for life. You got to take care of it. Heart's kind of important. You want to make sure you have good cardio health. You want to get good exercise. You want to lay off on foods with saturated fats. Cardio health matters. And if you allow your heart to get all gummed up with fatty material, you could die. You could get very sick. You could have a heart attack. So we all know biologically that we need to take good care of our hearts. But we also have a spiritual heart. And the spiritual heart is a spiritual space that also needs to be kept healthy. Now, as we interact with one another, we have all these shared experiences, some of which are painful and difficult. What can happen is that our heart space can start to get cluttered up with anger or bitterness or hatred. We start to dodge relationships. We start to call less. We start to try to avoid one another. We carry about in the space of our hearts angst and upset, perhaps even hatred toward other brothers and sisters in Christ. And this sin can corrupt and affect our spiritual hearts in the same way that fatty deposits can destroy your physical heart. So there's a call here for us to be aware of the state of our hearts and to keep them free from evil, to make room in our hearts for one another, to consider one another more significant than ourselves, to consider the other person's opinion, circumstances, experiences, trials, and difficulties. This passage doesn't mean that if someone's attacking us or seeking to abuse us or destroy us, that we tolerate that, that we just say, ah, I'm going to love you nevertheless, and you can do whatever you want, say whatever you want, act however you want, and I'm just going to stay quiet. This isn't a call for that kind of toleration. But it does remind us that in relationships, we need to make a conscientious choice to save space in our hearts, to make room in our hearts for one another. So then even when we are confronting another person, having a difficult conversation, our hearts are in the right place. We're doing it because we want reconciliation or we want justice to be experienced. Confrontation is the cholesterol buster 
of our spiritual hearts. It enables us to maintain healthy and meaningful relationships. Secondly, we must at times defend our intentions and explain our conduct. Because many of the time, much, much of the time, when we have relational conflict with one another, we discover as we begin to talk and communicate that it's often based on misunderstanding. A person misunderstood our tone, our intention, they read between the lines, or maybe we didn't frame up our words quite right, and we talk it out. And when we talk it out, it often leads to a resolution. So Paul here is talking it out with this church. Now, he didn't have the advantage in this particular circumstance to pick up the phone. Obviously, there were no phones, so he had to write them a letter. And letters, of course, can be misunderstood, but it's better than nothing. So he writes them a letter in order to clarify his intentions because he'd been accused by some within the church of trying to destroy the church or of trying to um, flaunt his own pride, arrogance. So he has a conversation with them to try to correct their misunderstanding. And you can see the con. The, the, the defensive language that Paul uh, picks up in, in this text, explaining his motives. He talks about the fact that the church is in his hearts, that we're in one another's hearts. He talks about the fact that he acted with great boldness, but really it's because he has pride in them. He wants what's best for them. And perhaps they had thought at times, oh, Paul, you're a little over the top. You're a little brash and loud and bold, and that's a symptom of pride. Paul's like, no, I'm, I'm confronting because I'm proud of you. I want you to grow up. I, I love my, the, the churches that I've planted. So Paul defends his responses and his motives here. And at times it might be necessary for us to do the same, to have a conversation, to defend ourselves. Nothing wrong with that. To defend ourselves against allegations of wrongdoing or corruption or allegations that were taking advantage of one another in the church. And by the way, if you keep your ear to the ground and you have a lot of relationships, you'll notice that there's essentially a series of recycled allegations that tend to be levied against people who speak the truth. Paul here had spoken the truth to this church. And we'll learn momentarily that many of them had accepted it. But some didn't like it. And they started throwing allegations Paul's way. And if you are involved in ministry and in relationships and you consider yourself a minister of the gospel, you're active in sharing your faith, you're active in standing up for that which is right, you can expect the same series of recycled allegations to be thrown at you. In fact, it's fascinating really to watch many of the allegations that our church has had thrown at us, mostly by people outside of the church, but also by some in the extended church of Jesus Christ across the province and around the world. Just a, a series of recycled arguments 
Here's five of them that I often have experienced and I'm sure many of you have as well as you sought to be faithful to your calling. Uh, one of them is, well, you don't really love people. You know, you're, you're in it for yourself. We often hear that allegation thrown at us or people will avoid the content of what we say and they'll, they'll accuse us of saying it wrongly. Well, you didn't use the right tone or that wasn't the right word or we didn't like your approach. They don't wanna deal with the substance so they attack your method. It's very common in relationships when people are being confronted to avoid the substance and to pick apart your methodology. Third, this is a broad allegation often levied against ministers of the gospel. The church is just in it for the money. We're just in it for the money. You know, we're just here to bilk people out of their financial resources. Or we're accused of being hypocrites, which admittedly at times we are. We don't really even deny that. But more often than not, we are acting righteously out of our convictions. Others accuse us of being homophobes or haters or bigots or racists. The, the, the point is, is the, the allegations that Christian people who are seeking to be faithful to God's calling tend to be recycled. And Paul demonstrates to us here that it's, it's, there's no, nothing new under the sun. It's not unusual for a faithful minister of the gospel to be misunderstood, to be attacked, to be maligned. And if you're going to be faithful in relationships, brother or sister, you can experience and expect the same thing. You can expect to experience the same thing. People attack you. And sometimes those attacks will come from within our own ranks. And there may be a need at times for us to defend ourselves, to explain ourselves, to remind those that would accuse us of wrongdoing. No, we're in it because we love the church and we love the Lord and we want what is best for the body of Christ. I love what Paul says here. He writes, I do not say this to condemn you. He's reminding them, guys, I didn't challenge you and confront you to destroy you. It wasn't my intention. I'm not here to ruin people's lives. But I had to speak the truth in love. And yes, you felt convicted by it because you needed to change. This is something we often emphasize in our preaching ministry as we preach hard and unapologetically. We don't preach to condemn. Apart from Christ, we're condemned already, but through Christ, there is no condemnation for those of us that are in Jesus Christ. We do not preach to condemn. But when we preach, we can expect that at times, hopefully more often than not, there's going to be some conviction going on. And that's a blessed thing. And it is admittedly easier to receive the word of God preached and to wrestle with that conviction when we know that the preacher, whether it's someone like myself preaching formally in a setting like this on a Sunday morning, or whether it's you just having a conversation in a small group and confronting an attitude or negative behavior, it's so much easier to receive when you've been reminded that the person is not doing it to condemn you. They love you. 
And we know, of course, Paul loved this church deeply. He'd sacrificed much for it. And so he says, I do not say this to condemn you. He wanted to build the church up. He also addresses the allegation of pride, as we've commented on earlier. His words here are, I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. Paul had been accused of being a prideful man. It wasn't a hang-up for him. But he was proud in a different kind of way. He was proud of his church, of all the churches that he had planted. He took great joy and delight to see the people of God transformed and changed and making a difference and suffering for the cause of Christ. And we should all be like that toward one another. We should all be proud in a certain way when we see another brother or sister growing up and become, becoming more spiritual, mature uh, in Christ. There will be times, however, as we are bold in our ministry, as we take a stand for truth, as we are relentless in confrontation if someone fails to change, when the allegation of pride will be thrown our way. People often mistake confidence and boldness for pride. And more often than not, it's merely a reflection of their own insecurity or character deficits or willful disobedience against the things of God. It's true. But nevertheless, from our end, as we confront and engage in relationships, difficult relationships at times, we commit ourselves to confrontation in love because we're proud of one another and we want to see each other grow up in Christ. And we do not go silent or walk away or give up on the relationship just because people push back with allegations like this. We defend ourselves and then we continue to do that which is right to bring about reconciliation and relational harmony. Third, this is super helpful when we're seeking to bring reconciliation to relationships. We recall our common identity. We remind ourselves of who we are. Physical family is a wonderful thing. But you know what? There is something blessed and special about a spiritual family. Just prior to the service today, the few of us that are in this building today were just talking about how much we love our church family. You know, and if we had to move or whatever it might be, we'd want to go to a place where our spiritual family is first and foremost. Because we love one another. And the reason why we love one another is not just because we get along and enjoy each other's jokes and speak the same language and on and on and on. It's because we, we have the realest of spiritual bonds in Christ. It is realer than real. We know it. There is a radical unity that exists between brothers in Christ Sisters in Christ. We've been together transformed and indwelt by and with the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul even describes it this way, to die together and live together. 
probably alluding there to resurrection hope, by the way. He's willing to die together and live together with his church. He understands that their relationship is actually an eternal relationship. Think about that. All of us are going to one day die. And when we get to heaven, my wonderful wife Susie will no longer be my wife. Not sure how that's going to be, but there's no marriage in heaven. My children, my mother, my father, my brothers, sisters, we're not going to be family anymore, but we are going to be part of a spiritual family. The relationships that we have with one another, think about this, are forever. Now, fortunately, we'll all be totally sanctified so that if you're thinking, man, that doesn't sound like very good news because I know a few Christians that I'm not sure I want to spend eternity with. Okay, I get it. I get it. But let's just remind ourselves, we're going to be fully sanctified. So all of the, the irritating personality quirks and on and on and on that sometimes make church life at times maybe a little difficult, those are all going to be resolved. And we will be fully sanctified in the eternal kingdom of God. But it is our hope that we will spend eternity together as the people of God in the presence of God. Well, don't you think that this radical vision, this eschatological vision should affect the way we conduct ourselves in relationships in the here and now? I think it should. Life in the community of faith now in some ways should reflect our hope for the future. Our relationship should be spiritually based. Our relationship should reflect kingdom virtues and values. Nothing sadder than a couple of Christians to get together and talk about the weather or how the kids are doing or their favorite sports team and never talk about Christ, the word of God, spiritual matters. This is what binds our relationships together. And it's so helpful for us to recall our common identity. We will be together in eternity, fully sanctified. That eschatological vision should affect and influence the way we conduct ourselves in relationships now. But oftentimes the way Christians conduct themselves in relationships now is they, they stonewall, they push away, they cut off. They lack loyalty. They lack love. They speak ill of the other. That's not a heavenly vision of a spiritual family. Remember, we are the body of Christ on earth. And just as countries at times take ambassadors and establish embassies in far off lands to represent the purposes of their home country, so we are Christ's embassy on earth here to represent the virtues, the values, the message, and the teaching of our heavenly king. This radical vision should affect Christian relationships like nothing else. So think about it for a moment. As you process in your mind your mental image of what it is to be part of a church. What comes to mind? Sadly for many, the church is kind of like 
attending a football game or attending a baseball game as a spectator. You just kind of come and you sit in a pew, you sit in a chair, you sit in the bleachers, and you watch the experts play the game in front of you. You might enjoy a little popcorn, eat a few hot dogs, but you're not a participant, you're a spectator. Sadly, many people, that's their vision of what the church is. In fact, one of the things that I've debated with people over and over again, that you know, the, the pro-lockdown Christians in our culture today is this notion that church is not a spectator sport. It's not enough to just throw up a video online and have people watch the sermon and watch the music. Even what we're doing today is not right. It's not right to scatter people across the parking lot. And before long, we're going to resist that. It's not right. Church is not a spectator sport. We're a spiritual family. Can you imagine if um, your family was required to sit in cars out in the driveway and you know, I don't throw turkey legs at each other on Christmas and throw the cranberry sauce back and forth. What kind of a what kind of relationships would develop out of that if you had to do that week after week, month after month? Church is incarnational, it's relational. We come together and the power of Christ descends upon us. What's your vision of church? Do you understand that the church is a spiritual body? Picture that. We are the body of Christ. We are a spiritual embassy on earth. We are a family of believers. If you're a male, you're a believer, you're my brother, literally my spiritual brother. If you're a woman, you are my spiritual sister. We're a spiritual family. It's a wonderful thing. And it's so important that when we have conflict, when we have challenges, that we open up space in our heart for one another and stay strong. Especially, brothers and sisters, as we are being attacked and we are being persecuted. It's even more fundamental for us to stick together, to maintain short accounts if we've had little feuds, to love one another and to disallow our ultimate enemy, from fracturing the people of God. So let's stand strong. Let's enlarge our hearts for the people of God. Let's love Christ's bride deeply. Let's care for one another. Let's pray for one another. Let's have each other's back when we're being attacked. Let's have the hard conversations that need to be had if there's misunderstanding or division. And let's do it all to the glory of God. May your relationships be marked by peace, the peace of Christ. May you live peaceably with one another. And may God use this powerful and unusual testimony of spiritual unity to impact a divided and fractured world for his honor and glory. I would remind you that we are Trinitarian. 
And within the triunity of God, we have this beautiful picture of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons in one eternal essence, enjoying absolute, unfettered, holy communion with one another. Never at odds, never divided, always united. And that imagery should be reflected in our relationship as well. We are a spiritual body. We are representatives of God on earth. We are made in the image and likeness of God. And together we reflect the glory of God out into the world. So let's aim for that kind of Trinitarian unity in our own family relationships, in our church relationships, to the honor and glory of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords.